Right? I want to write lyrics to it. The culture cast. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that, Chris Denson. I love yeah. it. I We should have just practiced this, and then like you could have riffed like this was karaoke and sung along to the intro music by... Julius Wilder, by the way, a dear Ooh. friend who, Julius Wilder, this lovely young talent who's based in Nashville, who is a singer, songwriter, producer. And so for him just to throw that together based on the energy that he's observed, it's been great. But then your voiceover slash singing, hmm. Yeah, no, he had me doing a mean two-step in my seat. I um, mean, should we just try this again? Do, no, do, I'm not going to do it. Maybe on the I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome, Chris Denson, to Culture Cast Day. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Happy Pride Month. We are like inching out at the end of Pride, and let's recognize our LGBTQIA plus friends who I know love to get involved in these conversations because they're all about helping to create culture. And we're rolling into Independence Day, hence my red, white, and blue today. Just thought I'd say. Yeah, it's a, right? It's a you know, on. it's a lot. And I think what's even more important than a lot is that you're going on. So Chris Denson, welcome to CultureCast. Here's uh, what I, you. I love you. this. I mean, I know I had this huge teaser about you coming on and I think we will eventually get to AI, which I think everyone's really curious about. But what we're here to talk about is culture. And when I think of culture and when I first got to meet you, dude, you're at the center of it. Like everything that you have done from a career standpoint, um, in the vein of innovation and, you know, your background, which I know everyone went to go research if they already didn't know you, is just fancy, you know. And I, I think what we're curious about is culture and more specifically, how have you helped organizations really find their innovation groove? But before we get there, let's talk about you, dude. Like, who is Chris? Where did you grow up? How did you even, yeah, how did you even get into this innovation pathway? Um, I had a very, like, unconventional path. Like, a, you know, um, I grew up in Detroit. Uh, for real Detroiters, part of my growing up was in Southfield. I got to, I have to be honest, but there was a good portion of it, Seven Mile and Evergreen. Um, and <laughs> raised by a single mom who's a teacher. And, um, but I always had, had a, a really good penchant for jokes. Um, so even when we had like book sales and stuff at school or the book fairs, I would come home with joke books and my mom would like, she was hoping I would come back with like, you know, <laughs> Catch the Rye or things like that. <laughs> um, and that kind of like continued, like that sort of duality continued for a while. Uh, I got an engineering degree, worked as an engineer uh, for a little while, graduated from Michigan State, uh, worked at Chrysler. But all through college, I was doing stand-up comedy and oh, wow. um, eventually made the move to L.A. Uh, and had a, 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 a on, and, on and off again uh, love affair with writing and, and comedy writing, um, which I continue to do this day. And But in between gigs, right, you just start picking up things that you want to do to keep food on the table. Um, yeah. And eventually that turned into marketing and storytelling and trying to help companies figure out how to elevate above the fray. And I think with all those things, either you're engineering ideas um, as a person on stage with a microphone and trying to like communicate something that is uh, something that we can all relate to, but tell it in an unconventional way. 
Um, and I think the same thing happens with startups or marketing. You're just trying to cut through the clutter and present a voice of originality in some way. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack there, dude. So first of all, I'm going to go back to when you came back from the book fairs from school with the joke books. Yes. Did you ever play with Mad Libs? Remember those? I didn't like, you know, it's funny yeah. until I had kids, I didn't really do Mad Libs. Really? Um, I like literally, it would just be like the question and answer kind of. Just yeah. <laughs> so basically I'm sitting in the backseat annoying my mom and whoever else is in the car like, oh, what about this one? Um, but yes, Mad, Mad Libs got fun. And I, I realized how bad I am at um, English. Like, like, I was like, oh. what's the adverb? What's the, like, <laughs> so my kids were doing better than I was on, like, actually what you're supposed to put in the blank. I'm just like, blue for everything. I think it could be anything, though, in Mad Libs. By the way, shout out back to Roger. Hey, dude, I see that he's on here. And uh, our friend. And then I think George from my former Ponce, Chipotle, right on. Good to see you. Um, here's what's interesting about your background. I, I knew this about you already. You have like this natural um, ability to look at the fun things in life and actually comment on it. And then there's this piece about engineering. You know, until you told me like, and I studied engineering in Michigan State, you know, you're, you've been toggling between this left and right side of your brain feels like your entire life. And it feels to me, and again, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but having had those, those two disciplines, both the left and the right, um, the creativity, the originality, but then I also see the engineering side of you, the systems thinking, the problem identification. Um, I guess not a surprise that you're in the space of innovation. So tell me like how you made that pivot. And I know you've worked for, um, some huge companies and ad agencies around like helping fortune 50 fortune 100 companies find their innovation. But how did you step into that space? So what was it that happened that moved you into like, you, were you know, what it is? I, th I think uh, part luck, part being deliberate at a point in time when I started to see a pattern. Um, but for the most part, I've never replaced anyone at a company. Like I've always been a first or responsible for creating first. So at one point I was the marketing director for the New York Film Academy, but they had never had a marketing director before. And so I, I inherited a blank canvas. So yeah. you just get to go, what if I didn't inherit a system or this is how we do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, this is our methodology. It was like, what can you do? What should we do? And, and then, you know, it just, I love blank canvases. Um, even my first, my engineering job at Chrysler, they hired eight of us out of our degree program for first ever created position at the company. So oh. not only was I just doing my job, I was also like reporting back on like, does this job work? And is it, you know, how, how well is it serving the company and the needs? Um, and then eventually from the New York Film Academy, went to the American Film Institute, which a lot of people didn't know that the American Film Institute had a digital content lab for about 12 years. Wow. It was a think tank for marriages of technology. Total and OG. And it was like yeah. a little loft above the library that nobody knew existed. And because there were only four of us, we would recruit volunteer mentors from all over the world. You know, people who have worked on projects and built companies that we all know and love. And they would volunteer their time to build out these prototypes um, that we would try to solve industry problems around. Um, so we built like the first in-browser game for the PlayStation with Ben 10. We, you know, the Corporation for, for Public Broadcasting was one of our partners. 
Um, and so just over and over again, you start to go like, well, what if? And yeah. so I almost do worse when I'm in a company that is kind of, you know, stayed in the yeah. way they can operate. Um, you know, because it's you're also fighting against something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also dangers with that when you are like, you know, the, the blank canvas person. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that, and, and I'm starting to look at your patterns, and I think about my own patterns, you stepping into those roles where you're actually the first one of, and that you have the chance to create it and define and help kind of solve the problem for the organizations you've been a part of. I think that's interesting. And for those who are listening, and I know there's some early and career people who love to listen and jump into these conversations, um, there's something to be said about stepping into chaos or stepping into ambiguity. You know, so I was mentoring someone the other day and um, she was talking to different organizations and she was just saying, well, this kind of reminds me of, um, you know, my last company, but like 10 years ago, they have no systems. I don't know that I want to go into something like that. And I'm, and I, my immediate response to her was, that feels like every job I've ever walked into. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yep. And then I yeah. said, Ed, you either need to love it and, or be open to it and embrace it because you never know what, you know, the possibilities of learning, creating, et cetera. It's so, I'm getting goosebumps because it's yeah. so funny you said that. I um, So for about four and a half years, I ran the innovation practice for OMD. It was an yeah. internal group called Ignition Factory. And, um, and so, you know, our clients were like Apple, Pepsi, State Farm, the U.S. Army, and like just trying to figure out like interesting ways for them to engage with culture. And we pulled so many different Swiss Army knife tools out to like make innovation happen in the, inside the agency and in the world and so on and so forth. Um, and in our job descriptions, when we were hired, we were like, you must have an ability to operate in ambiguity. Yeah. Because you might get a one sentence brief, like, hey, we need to launch XYZ in September. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, eh, yes. And, you know, it's just like, what else? That's all we got. Um, and then that's going to change and fluctuate. They're going to get more information. Then they're going to feed you something that's going to derail what you were doing in the first place. Um, but just yesterday, coming like off the heel of uh, off the heels of Can Lions, I posted something about like all the chatter around AI and, yeah. and blockchain and data and like all the things that are kind of like affecting the marketing and creative in industries. I was like, you know, I said uh, I didn't say this out loud, but this is the thought I had. Uh, <laughs> technology gives us capability. Art gives us possibility. And, you know, in between those two, it's like, it's a little foggy and gray. And like, I ended the post with saying, play in the gray. Um, nice. Because it was just like, we don't know, you know, and we kind of grieve what used to be. We're afraid of what's coming. And in the middle of that is the, like, literally now. Yeah. Um, and that's a hard place for some of us to be because it changes so fast. You can never really right. get your footing. Um, and that, I think you're right. Like it requires a, a like a different personality trait um, yeah. that can be learned, but some of, you know, some people have it a little bit more inherently than, than others. Yeah. I think it's an interesting time right now in industry and business for, in especially this new workforce coming in where back in the day, it used to be old school corporations, some of which that you've worked innovation into, um, had a very bureaucratic, hey, here, check the box, here's the success profile, step into it, do these things to move on to the next level. And it's just so dynamic these days. And, um, and I think about the role of culture, and I do want to get into, since this is a culture cast, 
would love to get your perspective on um, what is culture to you and, and then what that means in the space of creativity. I mean, if there's so many new mantras now that um, I'm now going to borrow from you and will quote you on, you know, technology provides capability and art provides possibility and playing in the gray. It's this, um, the space that you're talking about, which um, I will also use the label of diversity and inclusion and creating an environment where any possibility, any idea is welcomed right now. Um, and it's just requiring humans to engage. Um, anyway, I don't want to answer your question, but I'd love to get into your thoughts on when you say the word culture, you know, how do you define it and what does it mean to you? Um, I think I have several definitions depending on, you know, what area of culture you're talking about, right? So I think there's, you know, a company culture, like how do we live, breathe, operate, what yeah. do we believe and how does that show up in the processes and the products that we make? Um, and I think every organization is different. Some are a little bit more buttoned up, some are loose, some are like, you know, just there's different operating mechanisms. And so anytime I go into an organization, I want to learn what their culture is and then try to enhance it from there. Because I think sometimes if you, if you want to talk about it from a consulting standpoint, you go into an organization and you try to change so many things yeah. and adjust the things. Uh, as, fun fact, I spent a lot of years as a personal trainer. Um, and, uh, you know, it was always like, I was trying to meet people where they were rather than try to give them my regimen. Yes. Like, okay, what do you eat? How much time do you have? Like what, you know, you learn all these things about them and then you can weave in things that are going to help them improve over time. And, and a very, um, like almost like merging onto a freeway Yeah. as as opposed to like, we're shutting the freeway down and you're going that way now. Like, but I thought, yeah. uh, so I think that's, that's the company culture side of it. Um, then you've got like culture. I always think of, <laughs> I, I was almost nervous coming on here because our mutual <laughs> friend, Joshua Jordison, who introduced us, <laughs> was like, oh, you guys are two of the most fashionable people I know. Oh, no. And, you know, and I, and I was like, <laughs> I need to, you saw, and I, for those of you who are just tuning in, I had on glasses and a hat before we started and I took it off. Um, and I even put on sneakers. But I think there is that sort of eclectic culture, Mm -hmm. like what is a tastemaker? Where does that tastemaking come from? Um, What cultures are we borrowing from, whether that's ethnically, geographically, globally? Um, And then there's just culture at large, right? Like what is the, you know, what is the collective consciousness of the planet right now? Mm -hmm. Like That is a cultural endpoint. And I think all those things need to be taken into consideration no matter what you're building. You know, even if you're building something for a very specific group of people, you need to take a look at the entirety of everything and then further define, you know, your mission, your product, your service and how you go about uh, uh, accomplishing those things. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love everything you said. And thank you for setting it in the context of all of these different spaces. Um, And first of all, the fun fact of you being a personal trainer and how that's manifested in the work that you're doing. Yeah, meeting people where they're at, meeting companies where they're at, just whatever your project is. What a great analogy. It's like, how do you merge onto a freeway with the flow of traffic versus shutting down the freeway and saying, everyone get off, right? That's such a good um, visual for those of you who are thinking, well, I'm in this company and we've got to evolve our culture because it's the year of efficiency got to figure out how to do things differently. But I, I, you know, you said this, like, how do you meet people and companies where they're at? 
And then how do you iterate change? You know, how do you, how do you help them think through given their capability, getting them to the next level? But then the whole piece too around, I'll just call it lifestyle. You know, mm-hmm. I think about uh, the personal culture that you bring in based on how you grew up, where you live, who you hang out with, you know, your family, like everything, the communities that you're a part of. I think that defines culture. And then I think the collective, like the zeitgeist of what's happening in the world. Um, I hate to be so crazy, but what do you think about this? Like, as you've been inside companies. So crazy. Yeah, so crazy. So crazy. <laughs> but I think culture shouldn't be limited by, yes, there's what's happening inside a company. But I think the opportunity is, how do you unlock all the goodness that people actually bring with them. But it feels like there's this this um, capsule where it's kind of like, okay, you're Chris, welcome right. to our company. Come and contribute based on this one-liner we gave you or you know, the job description that you may or may not be aware of. And like, I think letting all that other stuff in, which I want to get into innovation, I think create that diversity gives more um, potential for innovation. Yeah, I just I think, the, thinking yeah, the, the phrase that popped up for me as you were speaking is psychological safety, right? Can yeah. I be, do, say all the things that I want to um, and not be treated differently because even if they're like, even if I make a mistake, like I think yeah. that's the bigger part of, you know, psychological safety, right? Especially now when there's hypersensitivity around how we address each other and how we show up in the world, like that we are all like slowly getting into the double dutch and like nobody's <laughs> really jumping in. <laughs> like, right. And it's like, go in, get hit by the rope or like right. get your hop, skip, step on. I've never double dutched before. So hopefully I didn't mess up that metaphor for you. But, um, <laughs> I was going to say, some people are still learning how to just jump rope, like get in with one rope, dude. You know? Yeah, oh, yes. Or oh, yeah, exactly. Where, whatever your starting point is. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago and one of the things I talked about was like, the brainstorming space should be almost safer than HR, right? Where you can, you know, because you want to say the dumb idea, you want yeah. to, the, you know, your your friend that sold drugs, you know, 15 years ago, and what you learned from that person and how it might apply to the problem. You right. You be able to say these things. And I think most of us show up because we're getting paid to come up with ideas and solve problems. Um, we We show up feeling like we need to have the answer, right? So if there's 10 people in a room and you're like, Oh, I got one, right? As opposed to just contributing little nuggets. If I do bring up the, I don't know where the drug dealer metaphor came from, but like, if, <laughs> but, but if I do that, and then somebody else like later on says like, oh wait, that is that equates to what Johnny just said about something else. So you start to put these pieces together, yeah. And that is, and we talk about diverse perspectives. That's the that's the gold. Is like everybody's going to be contributing little drops into this bucket. Then all of a sudden you look in the bucket and you've got like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is yeah. No. Um, so I think, how do you, um, the, let's see, there you go. Psychological safety is a huge safety element. For me Check it out, Babaka. Yeah. Um, it is. So it's so true. And like, so how do you create that? How do you, and how do you, um, I don't even know if it's measurable, right? Like other than like surveying or wearing some sort of biometric device. Well, it, it is somewhat measurable. I think about psychological safety and I know Bavica, we used to work together and I mean, she's hardcore, man. She is about creating physical safety inside the locations where she works. And I think emotional and mental 
well-being and then the safety part is which is feeling free to take risks and being your full self and you know your manager honoring that the one correlation i can think about is you know you see all the data at least i know i do since i'm a nerd around you know why people leave organizations and the number one reason why people leave is a relationship with the manager yeah. and they don't feel like they're and i use my words not the words of the data whether it's you know, Deloitte, McKinsey, Gallup, like there's all these surveys are out there, but it's like, I don't feel like I'm seen or heard, right, by my manager. And so I think a way one can manage that is, it's actually everyone's job, but more specifically, the immediate leader of the people that they're supporting or the people that they direct. I think there's a measurement for that. Like you can measure that through, um, and correlate it too, to actual productivity and outcomes. Like, you know, what that team's actually producing. But then, you know, at large, people and companies are measuring it because that's like the number one reason, regardless of generation, I think there's five generations in the workforce today, why people end up leaving, you know, and then differs by uh, generation, like why they would, the second most reason why they would leave. You know, another is development and the ability to, you know, grow and develop and learn new skills is one for this generation that is coming in and coming up right now in the workforce. I think that's really important. So I would say, look, I mean, you know, shout out to the organizations that do great jobs of training people on, you know, psychological methodologies of engaging with your teams. Um, you know, I just took a, finished a shout out to trauma of money. I took a 15 week course in trauma of money and they became a client of mine. And we were, we've been talking to a lot of organizations about introducing this methodology to HR and leadership. So most of us in the workforce are in the workforce because we're like, oh shit, I got rent to pay. Right. And then there's a percentage of, of, of individuals who are like, okay, this is, I'm doing what I love. Right. Um, and so how do you calibrate between those two spaces? And interestingly enough, when you talk about like the scene heard, I was going to add a third to that because I took an acting class uh, yeah. for the pandemic. And one of the things that so correlated to what we're talking about is like any character in any scene is trying to do one of three things, be seen, heard or acknowledged. And, you know, and it's almost like how they want to be. acknowledged. Yes. So there's no uniformity to it because, you know, there's whatever number of billions of people on the planet and like all of us, you know, there's similarities, but we're all individuals. And I feel like the times I've managed teams, it's just, you know, there's, I don't know, I would say at least 20 to 30% of my time was just like, what's going on with you? Talking people off the ledge, really seeing what they're looking for, et cetera. Yes, we have something that's due in two hours, but if I need to take 30 minutes out to be like, let's take a breather and what's really like, what's really going on and how can I help from a human perspective? Yeah. Um, that is going to advance the culture, right? Like in, in terms of how you, you know, create again, like spaces for psychological safety where you do feel seen, heard and acknowledged. Yeah. I, I love that you brought that. People want to be seen, heard. And the third thing in acting, although I'm surprised you took an acting class, it feels like it's a just natural ability for you, Chris, just saying. Um, but um The acknowledgement piece. Yeah, that is a piece. And so what I think about is there's also this other study done by Dan Ariely from Irrational Capital. And there's this measurement, you know, this is for um, 
all of you who are responsible for people and culture of human resources, people and organizations, I think the hardest thing is how do you translate culture into something measurable for leaders? And there's different ways to do that. But one thing that I thought was fascinating is human capital factor is a measurement that Irrational Capital came up with. And they think they work with JP Morgan Chase. And what they did is they looked at the performance of publicly traded organizations and more specifically measured the relationship between the manager and the employee and their ability to acknowledge and appreciate their employees. Without yeah. getting into a whole lot of data, look it up, everyone, um, if you want to look into the information. But it is about the whatever the score was, right? If the managers demonstrated consistently their ability to appreciate and acknowledge their people, that actual shareholder returns for that company was higher than the companies where managers didn't know how to do that or they weren't demonstrating that at all. And I mean, they, they look at a lot of data and a lot of behaviors. And that was the one human capital factor that they said, this is what's going to create the greatest shareholder return. So yeah. I think it's interesting that you say that. And I also... I have a question think, for you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and uh, Sorry, continue. If I cut you off, I didn't mean to do that. That's okay. Um, I'm going to do it again. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. There's, We're having um, a convo. Did, did you spend time at Starbucks? Or am I, I did, yeah. I was so there for almost six years. Probably before we met, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, um, one of the things uh, I remember being fascinated by learning was that Starbucks um, over-indexes on training their employees on psychological interactions with customers because it's 7.30 in the morning, it's 6.30 in the morning, I'm angry, where's my coffee? There's a crowd of people. I'm yelling at, you know, like it's, it's a very high friction environment in dealing yeah. with customers. And I'm like, once I read that and like learned that, I go, there's no, like, I've never encountered a disgruntled or frustrated Starbucks, you know, barista in the history of my time going there, including this morning. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's training them on that skill. That's a life skill. That's not like a Starbucks skill. Totally. Uh, but look what look where Starbucks is culturally, um, as far as just the impact that they've been able to make and and the bottom line money they've been able to make. So I just that was one of those fascinating like nuggets of information. It's not about like do we make the best coffee? No, but do we like have <laughs> right. the happiest people? I, you know, absolutely. Well, yeah, I think it, it's great that you asked that question. I quickly want to acknowledge Nicole who just put, posted on here, the great study by Gallup, which came out, I think, in 2019. And it manifested in this book called It's the Manager and the Role of the Manager. And I love everything that she listed here, which is, here's what's important to the workforce today. At the end of the day, it's about my life, right? It's not about me taking a job. It's like, how does all of this translate to how I live my life? And so I love that you posted all up there, Nicole. Um, going back to Starbucks, though, it's so funny. So I was there for almost six years. And I had a role, um, one of my first roles there was to be the head of partner resources. We called everyone partners um, instead of employees for all of US retail. So um, the, Starbucks actually has an interesting business model. There's a lot of company operated units in North America. And then around the world, there's um, joint venture or or franch like large franchise model. And it was interesting. Uh, a former colleague, actually a good friend of mine, he was running Google HR at the time, Laszlo Bach, 
had called and said, I've loved to like network with you guys. How are you training your people? Exactly what you're talking about, Chris. You must have this interesting, like robust technology and training system to teach people this whole notion of how they actually take care of the customer, how they interact with people. Um, you're right, because I think at the end of the day, yeah, you can teach all the skills around making coffee. And I, and I said, well, first of all, we don't have a robust training system. You know, it's still stuff on iPads, but there's a lot of um, hands-on teaching by the leaders or the managers inside the organization or inside the, the unit. And I think one thing that was interesting is it was this whole purpose. And I'm glad that um, Nicole popped that up there in hiring people, which the unit managers were really skilled at. It is about hiring people who are aligned to the mission back then. I know it's changed with the new CEO of inspiring and nurturing the human spirit, one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's about finding people who actually that's their mantra too. So if you think about like hiring people based on, hey, I believe in this mission, this purpose of the company, and that there's this natural service orientation. So I think it starts with the hiring piece and then the training piece. Um, yeah, there is a way that Starbucks, when they talk about how do you swiftly move people through the line and also acknowledge that human beings are here, you know, it's that connection. Yeah. And so it's that human connection piece that it's actually just bringing that out of the service orientation that I think people already, you know, the partners already brought with them into the unit. And then the fascinating thing, and I've seen this happen, you know, in multiple organizations, is that um, it's the beauty of the culture that's created within the organization or within the unit, I keep saying the organization, that actual unit, where the peers actually call each other out, right? So if you're like not treating these humans who are customers coming through in the way that we should be consistent with inspiring and nurturing, right? Like the human spirit, they're gonna not only call each other out, but help each other out to just kind of course correct in the moment and do that. So it is a beautiful thing in that it wasn't like this robust, crazy technology that enabled this training. It was pretty basic training that the manager would give the, the new partner who would you know onboard and go through some, through some robust training. And I think it was just the reps and um, the reinforcement by peers, yeah. you know, where people just got really good at it. If not, they kind of self-selected out, you know, it's like, this isn't for me. Yeah, no, yeah. I, you, I, you know, I think again, you, it kind of goes back to the psychological safety. I interviewed, I can't remember her name right now. Uh, she was the first CMO of eBay. And uh, one of the things I was fascinated by her story was that she said she had a personal board of advisors um, and like friends, family, et cetera. But she treats them like a real board. Like they have meetings, you know, two or oh, three wow. times a year. She, and she, when as CMO, she was encouraging feedback of any kind from her team. Like, tell me where I'm fucking up. Oops, sorry. <laughs> sorry, LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, you know, like I, I want that. And I think, when you talk about that from peer to peer or within teams, I think that is it's so key. And I think it goes back to psychological safety just because yeah. there's a quote that I like, which is um, just because you make a mistake doesn't mean you are a mistake. Yeah. And I think most of us lean on the latter side where you're like, oh, no, I can't. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, but to have that from peer to peer is, is great. And I used to I do this. So I do this with my daughter. 
um, who just turned 18. And, um, but I, I used to do it with teams. Like I have a weekly meeting with her and where we start up the meeting, I go like three wins of the week, three hurdles of the week. What were your three most difficult moments? What were your three wins? And I've learned stuff about her friends, yeah. her personal life, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, most times we're talking about school and yeah. you know, future oriented topics, but just to create a cadence and a rhythm of like, I'm not here to judge you. I just want you to let me know what's going on. Even when I took my acting class, it was a three hour class. We would spend the first 45 minutes, so only like six of us in the class. Um, and it was like, what messed up things have you experienced this week? Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't process through those, you can't emote, right? And you can't right. embody a character, which same thing you can't do if you're at work, right? If I don't get clear some of that clutter out of the way, how are you going to perform at 100%? Right? Yeah. And, um, and so creating moments repeatedly so because people are going to be like a little bit like wait what i'm not telling you that you know the the first few times <laughs> and then eventually it's like okay yeah i'm going through a divorce or i'm like yeah whatever is going on in their lives um that shows up in the workplace subconsciously yeah i love that i love that you're giving tips which you can apply um no matter where right at home at work um and it is about how do you have that cadence with people to build that trust in the relationship and just understanding this, their starting place, where they're coming from, and more specifically, what's getting in the way of helping them, you know, provide the most pro, you know, potential that they can provide in the situation. Um, I, I love that tip. So three wins and three hurdles for the week. One thing that I know I've done too is um, in meeting new groups of employees especially my last company, we're hiring so many people in the first year. And I would do these roundtables. This is pre-pandemic where, you know, if I was in that location, we would meet, you know, the 10 newest employees or join in the last couple of months. And they're like, oh, no one's going to talk to you. Who's going to, you know, CHRL, blah, blah, blah. And I would just start off with, you know, here's me, here's my family, have a picture of the dog. No, you've met my dog. And then that just kind of opens up. They're like, wow, she's talking about her dog. We're not immediately jumping into work stuff. But then questions are pretty easy. It's like, hey, what are you excited about? You know, mm -hmm. and then what are you not? And then help us understand how we can help you be excited about that, right? What tools or resources, what ideas do you have? And it's kind of like when you open it up in that way, it creates that, um, that trust, right? Where you can have that safety. And, and then I think it creates that culture where if, if one leader is doing that, then everyone should be doing that with each other. But I'm, I'm really curious, you know, when you were the director of, uh, at Omnicom and you were at the Ignition, fac Ignition Factory and you've worked with these large companies, I'm curious about how you've not only helped them with the specific assignment, right? So you're going in there because you're trying to innovate something. But then how does that turn into sustaining innovation in a culture? Like, I know that's a big question. It is a big question. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective on that because we're talking about it one by one, which I love these tips, but I'm sure you've seen a lot where it's like, all right, I'm in here to go do this thing. But then is it sustainable to keep hiring your company, you, to come and help do another thing? Like how do well, they- ironically, yeah. it's, it, the, the, yeah. the metaphor that popped into my head is almost like, it's, it's like seeing an ad, right? If you see an ad once, you probably, it won't, you know, it won't affect you. If you keep seeing, like, I keep hearing about this movie. I saw the billboard. It popped up on a YouTube video. It's in my Twitter feed. It's on Instagram. Somebody else talked about it. And 
you know, one of the things I, I try to do is create a rhythm of engagement with okay. the client. You know, uh, just to use OMD as an example, we would do a trends report every year and we would turn that trends report into a calendar. So we would find we would find 12 macro shifts in culture that we thought were happening. And around November, December, we do a road show to all of our clients and like walk them through the trends. Now you have this calendar you can put on your desk. Yeah. And people love the calendar. And it's like each one is reminding you of like, oh, yeah, robotics. Oh, yeah, this is norm court, like whatever it might be. Um, we wrote a book, like a physical book. I have it. I have one somewhere over here, but like um, every quarter, we called it pop. And there were like 50 things in culture that we found that were just cool and interesting. Not trends per se, but yeah. just like differentiators. Love um, it. And then you walk into people's offices and you see that they had the volume over the last two, three, four years. Um, at CES or South by Southwest, we would do innovation showcases. So every like chance we had, we would just open up the aperture of possibility. I'm like, did you know that this is a thing? Yeah. Did you know that this is a thing? Or, oh, I've heard about that. You know, can, tell me more. And some, like a lot of times you, you, they might not request an activation against whatever you told them for months down the road. You know, remember the thing you told us about? Is that still? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Let's figure out an idea around it. Um, so there's a there's a large uh, quotient of trust that needs yeah. to be developed, especially, you know, because it's like, yes, I, I do the thing I know how to do and I know I'm safe in this space. But that thing over there is like making me a little nervous. How do we build a you know a culture of experimentation? All right, so you, the next project, let's do ninety percent of what you know works, and let's add ten percent yeah. of this experimentation. It's less risk. Yeah. Um, and then you know, cut to a year or two later. Now it's time for a big shift. You've you've heard from us enough yeah. times. You started to adopt a little bit of the thinking and methodology within your own teams. And now you're like, yes, let's do it. I, I understand the risk. So it's the difference between like uh, a $10,000, you know, project and a half million dollar project. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, the, it all comes down to financial risk, right? And whether it may be some culture, some other things. But yeah. like, if I spend money on this, well, my return on innovation, not even ROI, return on investment, like what is that going to yield me? And I think, you know, I used to tell my team like there's um because, you know, for every idea or case study I can show you, there's probably like a hundred ideas on that same very problem that are dead in the water for whatever reason. Um, and so, you know, I had a point in time where like I talked to the team collectively because they were like, you know, it's really exhausting coming up with all this stuff. And the clients are always saying no. And I go, well, maybe let's redefine what success is. The success can just be the fact that I've enlightened you in some way over and over again. If I if I talking to Wells Fargo about robotics, you know, it uh, which is a real <laughs> scenario, you know, they might not activate against it immediately, yeah. but that person that was in the room might go home and tell their spouse, that spouse is going to tell one of their coworkers. And then next thing you know, some other company is doing a robotics project because you planted a seed. And so there's these invisible sort of um, wins that happen yeah. along the way. And you have to kind of be aware of the outer rings yeah. of the, the things that we want to do and, and create culture. I, I just crack up though. You started with this whole rhythm of engagement, which I know for a hot second, the comment popped up there. Um, Mike Miller said, what a great DeBarge song. I think it's great. This should be a whole songwriting episode. I know it could be. It, it, we started off with karaoke, like sing along and now yes. songwriting. But I think about this rhythm. Yeah. <laughs> 
I had to process that. I, I'm glad that you did that out loud. Thank you for you and for the audience who got to participate in that. Um, but this rhythm of engagement and the way, you know, I, the way I translate it is creating this culture of continuous learning for your clients, right? You know, I'm curious to see if you even have photos of these books, these pops that you, you keep giving them, like seeding them with all these ideas and the fact that they have collected them. You know, I think about innovation, to your point, it is about how do you uh, create this, this ongoing culture of continuous, that's what I'm trying to say, continuous learning. Now, they still have to crack open the book and read it click on the link of what they you sent them and read it. But I think that's interesting, right? Like innovation happens when you are always encouraging people to be a continuous learner. And I think right? there's, there's one other portion piece of that that um, I'm thinking of as you say it is like, you have to be thorough, right? Like if, if I emailed you the trend report, You'd be like, cool, I have 19 hours worth of work to do for today. And, you know, and actually two hours of space to do it all in. Um, And so even one thing I I realized, I think we were talking to Visa at one point. And we go in, present the trends. And, you know, I realized, like, they're getting trends from everywhere. From other agencies, other other teams responsible for it. And I was like, let's go one step further. And let's, after we talk about what the trend is, let's present three one-line thought starter ideas on how they get activated against it. Just one small, like, next step, which means that, like, now you've put it into context. You've put, you know, you've put it into, like, okay, cool, AI, great, I don't know. Well, what if you created blah, blah, blah? It doesn't have to be a a 25-page deck and presentation and a budget and all these things. Just, like, just let this one sit with you. And people go, hmm, actually... Right. Like, and so it is being thorough with the book, you know, same thing when we would ship the books, but along with it comes an email with like maybe two or three highlights. Yeah. You know, So like you get a quick snippet of and now if, if that trailer of the book is good enough, you'll dive deeper. Yeah. So, you know, we have to realize like even in that constant cadence of communication, even when we did showcases, it wasn't just go come show, walk around the room literally hold handhold people walk them over to the startup or the company that we wanted them to like meet talk about like oh they do this what if we did it with this project you've been thinking about yeah oh my gosh. so there's a there's a level of customer service that you know we can easily forget in that in that rhythm I love that you're saying that. I mean, when I hear you talking about being thorough, I think it's about the follow-up and how do you make it digestible for people when they've got a million things that they need to accomplish? Um, How do you capture their attention? What are the one or two key things that they should take away from from this if they don't have a chance to read it? I'm a big believer too. Um, I learned this from Franz Johansson who has this company that was called the Medici Group and now you know they've evolved to this tech company, but innovation happens in steps, right? And if you can get this down to the smallest executable step, what is the next thing mm-hmm. that can get people onto this trajectory of innovation, of diversity, of learning? And I love that you're using that as an example where it is kind of, you said this, like handholding people like, all right, if you're to take this one step further, what would this look like? What can you actually digest today? Yeah, um, I, think, I yeah. think the undercurrent of this entire conversation to me is empathy, 
right? Like yeah. the ideas, the technologies, the cultures that are shifting all the time. But at the end of the day, like how well do we understand the people we're working with and for and like what their pain points are and how do we help them navigate them? So, you know, I used to have clients go, oh, that's such a great idea. We don't have the bandwidth to do it. I was like, yeah. yeah, team, we like, we can, yeah. we can manage a good portion of this. Like, and that's also after we've established a really, you know, yeah. a, a, a foundation of trust. That's of right. But uh, like it is, I think it all boils down to empathy, whether it's psychological safety in the brainstorm space, or it is like servicing the client or just being in a brainstorm room, thinking up ideas. Yeah, I love that. Actually, you're reminding me of a conversation I had last week with Erica Caswin, who um, was on CultureCast. And, you know, she was talking about the role of the manager, right, in culture. And now it, the, the terminology that people are starting to use is the human manager, not a manager, but you're managing humans, right? And this whole being empathetic and understanding where people are, meeting them where they're at. And then, like, I got a follow-up after the CultureCast with another former co-worker from Starbucks who was now at Krispy Kreme. And he, you know, showed me a page. He took a picture of a page that's out of their performance review. And part of the expectations of being a manager is to be a human manager. So I think of that word when you talk about empathy and like the role that people play today in helping each other or bringing the best out of each other is to yeah. be human. Um, I, I do want to jump into just because we've had you on here and you have this whole crazy following around your own show, Innovation Crush, right? Almost a million people followed you. And you've interviewed like, I'll just call rock stars and celebrities of business. I'm curious to see, you don't need to call them out by name, but like what's one big theme that you've seen from the most innovative com company leaders that you've interviewed? You know, what did you learn from them? And hundred, I think it's like hundreds, almost 300 interviews, episodes that you've had. Yes. What's the one theme? Uh, and shameless plug, we're doing a relaunch uh, next week. Oh, excellent. Um, so uh, perfect timing. The And the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is not like some fast company article kind of thing. It is, it's, it's a lonely journey. Almost everybody I talked to like felt lonely in some way. Like one of my favorite examples was, yeah. like, I'll, I'll do this quickly, is Andy Walsh, who was at the time was the head of the human performance program at Red Bull. Like he trained Felix Baumgartner for the space, yeah. right? Like physiologically, mentally, made little science tools to you know measure all his heart rates and all these things. Um, and he he did this dozens and dozens and dozens of times over for super high performers. And I go, well, who's pushing you to your peak? You know, to your next level. And he just took a deep breath and he was like, I, "That is something I struggle with." Oh. And people that I like admire for all the things that they've you know done in their careers. They're like, what you want to interview me like this? This shit is hard. Like it's unsexy. Cuss again. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an unsexy process, right? We celebrate yeah. like the articles and the awards and all that stuff, but the, the building things that haven't been built before is a really lonely process, especially because the thing you're building is unique. You're not, you know, if I yeah. was building another streaming service, I could like read the blogs and go to Medium and find out like, what yeah. the, you know, where the bodies are buried. But if I'm building like, ah, what if this thing? And then I got to convince other people that it's, you know, to give me money for it. Sure. Time, resources, convince people to come on board and join this company. Like it's, 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 a, it's a lot. Um, and that happens with athletes. It happens, you know, with so many different um, pillars of cultural influencers and innovators. 
I agree with you. Um, thank you for sharing that unique perspective. I don't know that I would have expected to hear that, you know, at least from another guest, but for you to go, hey, here's one thing that you've seen and sharing Andy's story of like, okay, you're giving your energy to help people perform at their best, create a culture of high performance, et cetera, for others. But then who is feeding you, you know? Yeah. And so it's a reminder of um, going back to what you've already said from your acting, people want to be seen, heard, and acknowledged. And regardless of who they are and where they sit in the chain of how things evolve, you know, in a company or in life, people need to be acknowledged. And I think there's this whole notion too of, I think the good news coming over the last couple of years is that we're realizing, wow, there's human beings at the center of everything that we do. And especially those of you who are leading the charge, right? Figure out a way to, you know, what feeds you and what is yeah. your own self-care? Because it's, it's uh, every person that I've been chatting with lately, you know, the common theme that I've seen is you can't be good for others unless you're good to yourself, right? Oh, Get yeah. like really clear about what this all is, not only, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever that is, you yeah. know, because then you can't, uh, even ask that of others or bring that out of others if that's not straight. And well, so, in fact, we, yeah. you know, um, I have a business partner that I'm working with and we just uh, did a soft launch of a company that's actually working on transformational training for executive leaderships, um, individuals. And it is exactly that, right? Like how can you continue to widen your lens of possibility internally so that externally it shows up and trickles down and ripples throughout your yeah. organization. And, you know, we can, you can back backtrack it to innovation, right? Cause we all want to like exponentially outperform what we did the last time. And so like, we always yeah. want that. Yep. Um, but, you know, kind of like the person you were when you started doing that, you know, whatever it is you do, is different now. And so like, you need to revisit a lot of your tools, tricks of the trade et cetera, yes. to make those things happen. Um, and then my last shameless plug is that in my book, 10 essential rules for breaking essential rules. Uh, I do walk through like other things I've learned through these interviews and through my own experience. So um, loneliness is just one. Of them. I, I love it. No, I love too, that you're able to plug innovation crush and the reboot that's happening next week. Your other, your book, Crushing the Box and the 10 Essential Rules for Breaking the Rules. I love that. Um, and, you know, when you talk about helping these leaders go through transformation, I guess the internal thought is like, what I was hearing was, you know, that adage of what got you here ain't going to get you there. And I think that's also a thing too, like all of these things that we just so go, well, I'm successful or I got here because I did these things. Uh, you know, I find that from company to company, from person to person you've got to start where people are at, right? And yeah. also monitor yourself and go, what else do I have to learn? You know, because you're right. I think what got you here ain't going to get you there, period. Yeah. Um, I do want to jump into where we started the top of the hour and going back to how technology enables capability and art enables possibility and the, there's the gray space in between. And let's talk about AI. I know I kind of tease people with like, hey, what are the implications of AI on innovation and on humans? You're talking about I... Alan Iverson, right? Pardon? Alan Iverson? Yeah. No, not Alan Iverson. I'm talking about <laughs> artificial intelligence. Dude, I was cracking up the other day. You also made up something in the moment. You're like, oh, rap GPT. 
like, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going off track, but I would love to get your perspective. We've been talking about innovation. You've had a career on innovation. You're always creating new things. Your thoughts on now the role of AI, but also where is the role of humans yeah. as it relates to AI? I feel like there's, there's three people. There's people who like are scared of it. There's people who are excited about it. And there's people who don't care, right? Like there's, <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's it, you have to look at it as a tool, right? And, and also, I don't think anybody has a crystal ball on like where everything is going to lay and and end up, but um, this idea of efficiencies and creating new opportunities—it's like you know I've, I've toyed around with ChatGPT, a, a bunch of things, but yeah. like it just becomes like a, a creative assistant. Um, we also have to realize like it's been around for a long time. The reason I can have a conversation with you and then go to my phone and because I said the word sneakers, I'm getting a sneaker ad on my Instagram feed. Right. That is a form of machine learning, artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So because it's becoming more a part of the cultural conversation, even in the industry, like go to Idaho, go to Indiana, go to like the middle of the country. It, it, it's less of a topic of conversation, a threat or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think when you look at like sort of, oh, these jobs are going to be eliminated or people in marginalized communities are going to be left out. Like, I think with every era of, you know, sort of new shifts and ease and doing things, it also creates a tremendous amount of possibilities. Right. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book called The Pirate's Dilemma. And uh, one of the anecdotes he tells in the story in the book is about uh, the, the introduction of the phonograph. And he's like, at the time, you know, a lot of musicians were making their money by going place to place, city yeah. to city, night after night. And that's how they make their money. Um, when the phonograph came out, they were like, oh, no, if anybody can have our music, then we're going to be obsolete. You know, we won't be able to go town to town. But it birthed the record industry. Yeah. And, you know, look at what that has become. Um, same thing with YouTube and the studios and the, you know, and the, specifically the gaming studios. Yeah. They're like, oh, they're taking our IP and they're making videos. Oh, no, they're showing how to play the game. Everybody's gonna, oh, wait, it became a billion, billion, billion dollar industry. Right. Because, because of that. And I think there is some opportunistic vantage points when you think about what artificial intelligence is capable of. Yes, there are things to watch out for. We, you know, we know where the bodies are buried. We also know we're a stupid uh, society of individuals, and yeah. we miss a lot of detail when we make things. So, you know, and I'll tail that off with the fact that humans love solving problems. So, even though like there's the the pros and the cons of it, and like everybody's like, watch out. Um, eventually, like the physiologically, like endorphins are released when we solve problems. So. Oh no, this is happening over there. Here's a solution for it. Whether yes. it's blockchain or, you know, if you're an administrator at a school and you have a AI detector for when kids turn in their homework assignments. Um, I was thinking about this anecdote earlier today, and I'm talking fast because I know we don't have a lot of time. That's okay. Um, is uh, with Cliff Notes, right? And remember oh yeah, like, oh yeah. Like uh, I can either read the book or I can read the cliff notes, right? And like how many of us read the cliff notes instead of doing a thing? Same thing with assistive AI. Like, oh, I need to create a flyer for this thing. I only have, oh, good. I just created it on Canva because they have an AI tool. Yeah. 
um, you know, is is it cheating or is it a, is it an efficiency? Right. Like that's a moral quandary. But um, but it is a tool. And how do we and it's here. And like, wh- how do we how do we accept it and deal with it as such? Yeah, I I um, I love this. And actually, Nicole just popped on here for intelligent automation for mm. AI or IA, intelligent automation. Um, I'm hearing you say this, and here's what I love what you said, and it relates to innovation, which is humans have this innate need to problem solve. And I think innovation to me, and then I'll layer in my thoughts on AI to you, is that innovation starts with getting clarity on the problem and getting alignment on the problem that yeah. you know, you're working with others to solve before all these amazing solutions kind of come in, because then, you know, if you're if you all fall in love with the problem, then everyone's going to be on board with. I'm going to give you all these ideas on how to solve that problem. I think with AI, um, I, I I think about it in this way too. I agree with you. I think AI can create some efficiencies to get you know, jumpstart maybe the not so creative thinking that people need to have just to get something done. But with any technology, and I've been saying this for the last five or six years because I had to go do a talk, and it was for a company that does consulting with technology and they're like come and do a keynote and the title of my key- keynote is you know i think the biggest trend of technology is humans and i think for humans to with ai especially you still need to have judgment you know to whatever the end product's going to be there's a level of human interaction and judgment thinking emotion etc that needs to be engaged and involved to finalize something yeah. You know, or you can actually cheat if you want to use the word cheat and like go ahead and serve up whatever it is that you created. But then that was your judgment to go do that, which I is not good. Briefly before uh, before we started um, and shout out to SoFi, they, you know, they tested AI to say, show me, a, you know, make a picture of a wealthy person. And you can oh, imagine no. what that person looked like. Oh, no. And so they created like a whole portraiture studio for, you know, high net worth individuals or people who are wealthy or, you know, financially sound um, to have their picture uploaded as part of it. So there's like a black woman and on the on the face of the article that like it's again, a, a human recognized the problem and was like, OK, well, let's keep teaching. This yes. AI, you know, what's what? Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's the thing that it's the duality that drives the world and culture forward. I love that. And shout out to SoFi for actually learning and making sure that the data that is being input into the data set is reflective of what's happening in society. Um, One last question. I know at the top of the hour, and this is always a fun one for me, and especially because you are one of the most fashionable people that our friend Joshua knows, just saying. But like, what are you listening to, watching, hearing, reading, wearing these days that you're loving and why? Ooh. Um, please go to my Instagram, uh, Densonology. <laughs> There's a pair of sneakers I bought um, that uh, these Nikes with like animal print on them. They're like blue yes. and white and like orange with like really dope leopard print. Um, and then I even knew you would ask it, like I told you, I put a, I put a, I put a, my, <laughs> my white Air Force Ones. I was like, just in case the camera. Just in case. Yeah, just in case. Um, musically, uh, I, I'm Densonology on Spotify, and this is a little known fact, but I got asked to be a Spotify influencer a couple years ago. Oh, nice. So, like, uh, I'm a playlist nerd. 
Um, and I like my spectrum of stuff is all over the place from Chris, Christine and the Queens to um, ASAP Rocky to then I'll get like really gutter with hip hop to nice. you know, I, have a, I have a playlist called Body Count. Um, which is just like all like really dope headbanging like gangster rap. <laughs> um, I have one for meditation with like Ram Das on it and like some classical like meditative cuts. Wow. Um, I, matter of fact, you know this. I, we did an art official intelligence event at Verizon's uh, Innovation Lab, and the DJs that I brought in, I was like, I want the music to feel familiar but different. Yeah. And we had a whole library of like um un, uncommon remixes so like Sade but it was like a dance two-step like, yes you know, step kind of thing um and then you know on occasion you can catch me freestyling in the shower so I, okay um, oh my gosh I love 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 all of this and we can go on for like just, hours and hours uh, I'm a Virgo on Amazon which oh is, that's uh, on my list yes pretty pretty good yeah, I am a Virgo too in life, kind of Leo Virgo, just FYI. Um, but here's what I love. Thank you so much for all of the shout outs to how people can find you. Eventually in the show notes, we will list all of them so that people know how to find Chris. Um, and please just reach out to you. I'm sure people would love to learn more from you directly, how they can work with you, et cetera. And then as we wrap, um, thank you everyone for joining us for this last hour. Please follow us, CultureCast, Marisa, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Substack. There's many ways you can also reach out to us or to the website, which is here. And our next guest is actually a week from tomorrow, Thursday, July 6th, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Hennaro de Rosenzweig is an art director for street art in Mexico City. So I'm excited to talk to him about how he brought that to Mexico City and how that's become a thing. It's become culture. So everyone, so good to see you. And Chris, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know I heart you. I feel like we should just go out and have a drink right now. Just know, continue no, chatting. You, I feel like you should just break out the guitar and the piano behind you. I know, right? Totally. Come on over. All right, man. Thanks, All right, everybody. Thank we'll see you next time. Take care. And happy fourth. Bye.